Welcome to the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society. Welcome to ITSP Magazine Podcast Radio. You're about to listen to an episode of Tech Done Different Podcast with Ted Harrington. Do you follow the pack or challenge the status quo? Join Ted as he explores how to succeed by going against conventional wisdom. You'll hear leaders in technology and security tell stories about how they achieve their success by doing things differently. Knowledge is power. Now, more than ever. CrowdSec, the collaborative and open-source cybersecurity solution. Analyze behaviors, respond to attacks, and share signals across the community for free. Let's make the Internet safer together. Learn more at CrowdSec.net. Welcome, everybody, to Tech Done Different. I'm your host, Ted Harrington, and with me here today is our special guest, Josh Twist. He's the co-founder and CEO of Zuplo. Josh, welcome to the show. Thanks, Ted. Yeah, great to meet you. I'm excited to have you here. And, you know, we were chatting recently about this idea of small gains and removing friction and and all this. So I kind of wanted to start there because I think there are many people who listen to a show like this who struggle with what's the most efficient or effective way to do this. And so you were starting to share with me this observation that you've had that we can, by making, you know, even very minuscule improvements repeatedly, they compound on each other and it adds up over time. So maybe could you elaborate on that? Yeah. So this comes from my experiences at at Facebook mostly, which is a very experimental culture where, you know, they just run thousands of experiments. People probably know this now, but you know, if you're a Facebook user or an Instagram user or any of their products, you've probably got some different variety of the app, right? You're, you're being experimented on where they're testing features and see what happens. And I think one of the big takeaways are, or, or there's a few actually. One is in general, compounding small wins is going to lead to better outcomes than aiming for massive, enormous swing for the fences wins. You know, so if you can, if you can line up a series of 1% improvements, that just do the math. I mean, I don't have my calculator in front of me now, but you don't need many of those for it to actually start to really compound over time and lead to better outcomes, you know, depending on whatever your goal is. The other observation actually is, is around friction. Uh, one of the biggest learnings I got from Facebook. And if you can remove friction from a process, from onboarding, from your sales funnel, like maybe this isn't a big surprise, but it surprised me just how effective it was. If you can remove friction, and any kind of confusion from people's minds, you will quickly see those small gains that compound so easily over time. I, I worked on a lot of products at Facebook, and this became just this just became sort of implicit to me in my understanding of how to like get them to grow. Is there an example that you can share where you saw the removal of friction actually manifest? Good question. I'm trying to think of one that's uh, that I can talk about easily. That you're allowed to talk about, yeah. Yeah. And you know, it wasn't like I worked on a bunch of like top secret stuff. I just don't want to spill any beans. I shouldn't be spilling. A, s- a simple one is like helping people get into your product. We had that we worked on this product called Facebook Analytics. And getting to this product, and they had a lot of products in the business tools, you know, for designing ads and and it was kind of a little bit buried. You had to like click twice to get to it. And our users knew where it was. You know, we didn't necessarily get a lot of new users through this, but we just changed the positioning and made it easier for people to get into the app. This turned into like a massive win, actually. So it was, you know, on, on the front page of the second page. We got some new users, but actually what was better was how how it in- increased 
it already engaged users how often they came back, how how better retained they were in the product, how how many more sessions they had. That was a that was a, that example was a, a big win, and that was just really moving the position of a link. I mean, there's tons of things like this. You know, if you think about onboarding flows where you ask for information, like every field that you ask for a user to give you some information, you're gonna cause some drop in the the conversion rate of that funnel. And so really you should only ask for what you need to ask for. You know, if you if you're thinking you're gonna use this employee size count thing or whatever it is at some point in the future, you know, don't you're costing the efficiency of your business for some data that you could probably find out on the internet anyway if you just go and look at LinkedIn. So that's a big one. Plus there's plenty of tricks that you can do to move things like that to a later point in the funnel. Like, you know, there's there's optimizations where let's say I'm going to ask for three bits of information and one, I really need to get started. And the second is important and I want to get it. Then what you might do is wait for someone to give you the first piece of information, start the process of creating, you know, like there's some kind of waiting time for this thing to create or the next stage to happen, by which point you've won a bit of commitment from the user. They're already like further down the funnel. So they're more likely to want to, well, I'm already one step in. Whereas if they're presented with some huge form, you know, they're going to be phased by that. I've seen this be successful in a number of ways. Actually, if you're creating something that takes a little while to create for a user, like their account, then get the initial information you need to start the creation process and only that. And then whilst the account is creating, you can collect the additional information. I mean, those are just a couple of ideas, but yeah, I think these like small wins like that really compound. Yeah, it's pretty fascinating because the other day I signed up for YouTube TV and I found the onboarding experience to be breathtakingly easy to the point where I like I kind of stopped to think about that. and was like they really put some thought into this because it was literally, you know, you go to YouTube TV, you to their, you know, whatever the page, the marketing page, and then I selected which package I wanted. There was only a couple options. It wasn't confusing and overwhelming with what are all these different options. It was like, you get all of these channels. Do you want these other ones or not? And then it was click submit. And that was it because I already had, you know, everyone already has a Gmail account. So I already had a Gmail account. I didn't have to like create all this stuff. It was just, I mean, it was like 20 seconds. I was signing up because I wanted to watch a basketball game. And I was, I was thought it was gonna be like a 30 minute process. And there I was, I'm like, well, now I got time to kill before this game starts. And I thought that was that was really remarkable. And it sounds like that's what you're talking about, right? Like someone clearly thought about how are we going to make this an easy experience for someone? I would imagine I signed up for YouTube TV a while ago. I don't remember it. So that's probably a good sign, actually. Like I don't, it wasn't hard, but you know, I wouldn't underestimate the amount of work that's probably gone into that, the amount of experimentation and experiments they've run to, to improve that. You know, they know that that's really critical and is going to, you know, those small wins compounding out. So they will have spent a lot of time on that process, I'm sure. Yeah. And, and to your point about conversion, like, as I said, I was signing up for this just to watch this basketball game. I didn't really care. I wanted to watch the basketball game, but I could have also done like gone over to a friend's house that was texting me at the time and just watched it there. But I was like, eh, maybe I'll stay here and just watch it. And had it been even a modicum more difficult, I would have not signed up. But the fact that it was so easy to sign up, I did. It was, al- it was almost easy. It was definitely easier to sign up than to go to my friend's house around the corner. And that's remarkable. That took a, took a lot of work. So is part of what I'm hearing you describe is Uh, is partly about building, but is also about, I guess, the psychology of it, right? The user experience. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's something we think I've always enjoyed thinking about. Even, you know, at Facebook, I worked on some consumer products, but most of my career I've worked on 
developer tools and developer tooling. So at Microsoft and at Stripe. And my total passion is developer experiences. So for software developers, what's the experience they have? And I think, you know, it's becoming more commonplace now. Like people know that's an important thing to think about. Whereas not so long ago, you know, you, you, I think you kind of just had the tools you had and you, you dealt with it. You were struggling along with Oracle, or, you know, whatever it was, but it's seen as a, an advantage today to actually offer a good experience to developers to the point where, you know, I, I have this theory about this actually where I don't think user experience in many cases actually wins you customers. You know, if you, if you have two products and one is already incumbent and is doing pretty well, and you're, you're, you're going to do a startup and your rival is I'm going to build that same product, but I'm just going to have a better experience. I'm not convinced that's a good plan. I don't think a good experience wins you customers. What I think it does is when you get customers, it wins you their advocacy with other customers and also wins you their advocacy. So they'll, they'll help you recruit more people, right? But it wins you their advocacy so that you can move into adjacent spaces where you're perhaps not as unique. So having said all that, it is an area I care very, very deeply about. And, you know, in my new company, we spend a ton of time talking about, is this an experience that's going to win advocacy? So let me ask some clarifying questions about that scenario you presented, because that's a really interesting idea. But it, it sounds like there were two variables in the way that you presented it. So one is user experience. You know, app A has a great user experience, app B does not. But the second variable was... I don't know if incumbency is a word, but we're going to make it one. <laughs> one of these is already incumbent. One of them is not. So if you were to remove the incumbency trademark term, like if, if there's not an incumbent, and so now you have two systems competing for the same business, do you think that user experience makes a difference in that situation? I mean, let's use like jobs to be done. Are you familiar with the jobs to be done framework? This idea, let's just recap it quickly. So the idea of jobs to be done is that when you use a product like Facebook or Instagram, you are hiring that product because it has a job that you want to get done. And the job, you know, in a B2B, in a business to business world might be like, I, you know, I need to calculate spreadsheets or solve numbers or do planning. In the social world, it's often things like, hey, I have spare time. I'm bored. I want to spend that time. I want to stay in touch with friends and you're hiring for that job. So the problem with when you do this sort of incumbency dialect is people are already, have already chosen to hire that product to do a job, right? If you're saying you're both starting to tackle the same problem, you're both the same time to market, and so you're trying to be hired for the same job, then I think having a good experience is definitely going to help you. Because obviously, if you're winning advocacy, you're gonna you're gonna win. You're, you know, it's going to help you accelerate past that competitor. So I'm, I'm not by any stretch saying it's in, in, it's important. I'm saying it's necessary but not sufficient. Uh, if that makes sense. I like the frame you're putting around it that helps you win advocacy. I think that's a, the lifeblood of any growing business is how will our customers advocate to other customers. So is the heart of why this builds advocacy that we're understanding the customer and making their life easy or is it something else? Well, you know, ultimately your product has to solve a problem, has to have a, a job that you're getting done for the customer. And that, you know, that's the primary reason people are picking a product. It's the number one. You know, if if something has a great experience, but I don't need to get the job done, I'm not going to use it. I mean, that, that stands to reason, right? Like, uh, you know, doesn't matter how good that drill is. I'm not making any holes. I don't need a drill. I'm not going to, yeah, I'm not going to buy, not many people are going to buy it for that reason. So 
Oh, sorry, I forgot to look at the original question now. <laughs> <I got into> <laughs> well, what the what the aspects of advocacy are. Oh, so why they become an advocate. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. So, you know, if if, however, you are solving that job for a person, as particularly if they've had experience using a different product in the past or something similar, and it isn't a joy to use, it doesn't make their life easy. It's full of friction. Like you all have those moments when you're using products in your life where you're kind of like, oh, I got to go and do that thing now, you know? And it, uh, there's so many tools in my life where I think, oh, yeah, this thing is going to be tricky or difficult. Like just design tools, actually. I have two design tools I use in my life for drawing Sketch and Figma. And sometimes I've done a lot of work in Sketch, but then Figma's better at something else. And I'm like, oh, I'm just going to finish this in Sketch because I'm here now and I want to do it, you know? And then you, you see those differences in experiences. If I work with a product where I'm like, wow, this was just a delight. It was just a pleasure. I'm going to go and tell people about it. I'm like, it's insane how cool this is. It's insane how easy it is. I, you know, one interesting example was Microsoft competing with itself almost. We'll talk about developer tools again. So, you know, Microsoft's main developer tool for the longest time was this thing called Visual Studio. It is a behemoth. It grew over years and years. It was giant. It took a long time to load. It was very, very complicated. And slowly this rival that was basically a text editor that was so much more simple, lost all of the, the weight that you know Visual Studio carried. And it didn't have a lot of the features, like it couldn't do inline debugging, you know, it kind of had a, a big feature gap. We see this time and time again with feature bloated products, actually it's quite common. So it, uh, it, it was much leaner and much leaner products and people were starting to use that instead. Microsoft saw this coming, they saw they needed to be cross-platform, so they started a new version of Visual Studio that was Visual Studio Code. And I think it's like certainly amongst the developer community now, everybody uses this who's who's coding rather pretty much it's like very very dominant that's happened wow what in like eight years or something is it that long since i actually met the the i knew the pm who started this project i remember meeting me for lunch when i still worked at microsoft saying hey we're thinking of doing a a web-based ide that will run on the mac are we crazy i remember having that conversation that'd be you know like 2014 maybe i think and it's become what it is today. And, and let's be honest, the main reason is, is because it, like all of the friction's gone. It loads really quick. It feels, it feels it's fun to use just, you know, it just feels modern and just offers a great experience compared to this older bloated kind of had reached that point where, you know, there's a, there's a number of charts you often see about products and what happens to them over time is they add more and more scenarios, more and more use cases and instead of and if you had on the vertical axis how many users use each feature you know when it started like all of the users used the text editor and it didn't go much further and then you start adding more and more and more and more features and with each feature only like five or ten percent of users use each feature that's what bloat looks like and i think the best products are actually pretty aggressive at like killing things and cutting features so they they stay where there's like a lot of their users use all of their features Otherwise, what happens is you tend to get disrupted by some upstart that comes in with a, a fresher, simpler, cleaner take. You know, my other favorite example of this actually is is Google Docs, which again beat you know kind of beat Microsoft on on the Word, you know, on, on against Microsoft Word. I think I, most people I bump into today are using are using Google Docs. I'm not sure whether statistically that's true. I, you know, I think a lot of older businesses use use Word or use Office 365, but certainly amongst the startups, like more people are using Google Docs. And recently we've seen these really innovative new Docker, you know, I'm thinking of Notion, I'm thinking of Quip. I really liked using Quip. I'm not sure what's happening to that since it got bought by Salesforce, but it was just leaner. And I used all of the features in that product and I wasn't distracted by everything else. We see this constant churn in products. It's interesting. Hmm. 
Yeah, it's it's fascinating to hear what you're describing about how even being a long established, you know, number one position type product like Microsoft Word doesn't mean that it can't be taken over because someone else does it simpler. And simplicity is a it's inter it's interesting hearing you talk about simplicity because it's in some ways counter to a mature product. Mature products typically are like, well, let's add more features. But maybe that's not what we should be doing. Is is should we be thinking about products as they mature, making them simpler? Definitely, I think cutting things that are not used by the majority of your use case is a very hard thing to do. But I think it's one of the ways you, you know, you you only have so much time to focus on an excellent end-to-end -end experience. It doesn't matter how big you are, how many people you have, creating like a holistic experience that works is hard. And with every feature you have in a product you're creating a, a matrix of complexity, right? Where like, does this thing work well with that thing? What does the user have to think about when they arrive into the product and what did they see? And, you know, I think that that can definitely be the death of a product is just like constant feature growth. Uh, even in in the startup I'm working on now, like we're quite, we're quite early, we're already talking about, do we cut this feature? Just not enough people use it. We think it's cool as hell, but we should probably take it out because honestly, when we make a change, I'm like, does it work in the route tester? He's like, oh, I didn't test that. So I better go and test that. And then, you know, got to go and fix this. I'm like, no one uses this thing. Well, 3% of people do and they love it, but maybe it's time to cut it because it has an ongoing cost. Everything has an ongoing cost, particularly if you care about experience. So whose job is it to make that difficult decision? Hey, we spent all this time and effort building something. Some of our user base uses it and they love it, but we got to cut it. Whose job is that? I mean, in a, it depends on the size of the organization. I think in most non-tiny organizations where you have product management folks, that's almost certainly like a role for a product manager to, to make calls like that, supported with data science. And of course, in the B2B world, this can be hard. This is, you know, actually there's two worlds where if you're selling to businesses, they have paid for a product and you can't just cut it willy-nilly because, you know, Part of your agreement is like, you know, I, I kind of, I paid for that. You can't take it away from me. There's some tools there for sort of trying that out and seeing whether it's really an issue or not. In the consumer world, particularly like in ad-led businesses where people aren't paying for a product, or even in some cases where they are, you can, you have much more freedom to, you know, I would, I would never say just cut it, just try it actually like run an experiment, use a, use an experimentation tool like Optimizely or StatSig or something like that and see what happens. Does it actually affect your customer base? Are they less engaged? You know, when we're doing things like this as well, I'm always very, very keen to, sorry, any users of products I've worked on, you know, I'm, I'm less interested in opinion, like in the opinion of what the customer tells me, I'm much more interested in their behavior. Because we we don't really know what motivates us. N none of us do. You know, we, we're not good at articulating, like, if I, I get a product that works in this way, I'll switch to it. Like we're driven very much by our sort of like level two brain and our impulses. And so, you know, the customers, if you ask them, will almost certainly say, please don't take that feature away. That's like an ice cream question. Like, would you like this feature as well? I'm like, yeah, sure. Of course I would. You kind of got to, you got to test it a little bit harder in the B2B world to just randomly pull features, but um, you can try other things like making it more buried. And then when the customer, you know, like I talked about the reverse of like adding friction to that feature. And what you might find is once it's buried, people aren't going into it anymore. The value is not that much. And you can start to sort of retract it from its life in that way in the business to business world. But in the consumer world, just run an experiment. And yeah, that's very much the job of a PM. And it's it's tough. It's it's hard. It's a discipline because, you know, your instinct is to add more is more value. 
and knowing what to cut. But that's one of the key indicators, like what percentage of your, your uh, user base are using it. And beware of the the trap where there's a little, there can be a little bit of a trap here where the people that you do use it are your most engaged users. And so you think I can't upset them. They're the most important people to me. In reality, in most cases, your most engaged users are probably going to stay engaged. It's the middle of the field and the new people you're trying to win that are going to arrive. You know, you're trying to grow your product. Uh, your most engaged users are probably the hardest to, to mess up in some ways. You're trying to grow your product. What's the experience for those? How bloated has everything got? Like what you don't realize is the opportunity cost. And if you remove that and you simplify your product for the new people that are coming in. You're saying by simplifying, removing the bloat, you're unlikely to disrupt your long-standing most engaged customers, but you might upset the new customers. I can't promise that to always be the case, but I think in a lot of cases it's true. Yeah. No, yeah, that makes sense. Well, it's still a little more tenuous. They're not fully entirely committed. There's not politics built around adoption of a tool, things of that nature. So well, and they probably almost certainly came in for that core, you know, we talked about jobs to be done. They came in for that core job, almost certainly not for this additional one. And your core job might not, you're not as good at that because you spend some amount of your time, some disproportionate amount of your time on this other feature and the 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 network of problems that creates by having all of those those things in flight. And again, that's what happened to Visual Studio. It's what happened to Microsoft Word, right? They just end up enormous and bloated. And all of the people challenging them now are people who said, no, no, we're just going to go back to do the core job really well. I mean, here's a great example that we're using right now, Zoom. How many Skypes and you know Zoom tools did we have before? I still think the Zoom UI kind of sucks a bit, honestly. I, I, I would not like rave about it. But it does one thing very well. The meetings and the the latency is just on the money and everything else doesn't really matter, honestly, once I get that right. So they and and I noticed they don't add a lot of features to Zoom. It's changed, it's not changed that much, right? Because they don't want to get in the way in any I mean, I'm not a project manager at Zoom. I don't know if this is true, but I imagine this is like this is why they're so focused. They don't want to they're very focused on the core value and what they do so well. And that's the most important thing. I, I'm glad you brought up Zoom. I think that's a, a remarkable success story because, I mean, WebEx, WebEx and Skype, they had this this game on lock. And then the most perfect scenario in the world for video conferencing tools comes in the form of a pandemic and they get absolutely leapfrogged because I don't actually think Skype is that bad of a user experience, but WebEx is terrible. You always have to download something and it's it's like, it always takes five or 10 minutes to get logged in unless you're using it every day. It's just, it's a terrible experience. So yeah, simplicity is why Zoom won. I bet it has tons of features though. I bet it has like features everywhere, that thing, which are like being, not, not to like, you know, force the point, but I totally agree. Actually, I remember a few years ago when I was first introduced to Zoom and it just seemed so unnecessary. I'm like, what, who's done a startup like this? I mean, really? And then I, I did a couple of meetings and I'm like, oh, it's much better. And especially if you had, you know, with you had these remote conversations and the latency, noticed it instantly. And that was long before the pandemic. I think they were growing pretty well. Obviously, the pandemic became the ultimate um, uh, cauldron to, to, to prove out who was going to win the space. And yeah, it was a no-brainer. It's interesting then if you compare Zoom to, say, Google Meet, and Google Meet is simpler than Zoom, but it doesn't have quite the same feature set. So there, there is an example where the slight increase in features and capability is what really differentiates that product, I think. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point, actually, in clarifying what we've said is, so I'm a big fan of removing friction, but you know, you've got to have a great product at the end that the customer is trying to use, and that's the most important thing. 
And when you think about friction, actually, it shows up in many forms. And I, I actually think the the latency on a phone call on in having a conversation is definitely a form of friction that I imagine, actually, I wasn't on these teams. I actually know some people who worked on it. I could probably talk to them where they always thought it was good enough. You know, I have this sense that people were like, hey, we've done this video conversation. Hey, we got this solved. It's good enough. And Zoom came in and somebody there was incessant. It's like, no, we can get this faster. We can get down the latency to, I don't know what it is, but you know, like two milliseconds instead of five. And it turns out that makes a massive difference. I, that's actually a good proof point of like, if you just remove this bit of friction, you wouldn't think removing a couple of milliseconds latency would actually make any difference. I imagine that's the conversation they had at Skype. And like, I'm not worried about this thing. It has no features. It's, it's just a tiny bit faster. Turns out that was really what mattered. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. Well, Josh, you've been, you've been awesome. I, I've learned a lot from you today. Uh, is there anything you want to leave our audience with as their, our time comes to a close here? No, no, nothing in addition. Folks, if anyone wants to talk to me about any of the stuff we've talked about, they can reach out to me. My email is josh at zooplo.com. be happy to, to chat with anybody about stuff like this. Obviously, an area of passion for me. Thanks for having me on the call. It was great to meet you, Ted. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for, thanks for joining. And everybody listening, if you want to learn more about what Josh is up to or more about the show, just go to tedharrington.com backslash podcast, and we'll catch you next time. CrowdSec the collaborative and open source cybersecurity solution. Analyze behaviors, respond to attacks, and share signals across the community for free. Let's make the internet safer together. Learn more at crowdsec.net. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Tech Done Different Podcast with Ted Harrington. If you learned something new and this conversation made you think, then share itspmagazine.com with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to associate your brand with our conversations, sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey. You can always find us at the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society. <laughs>